Welcome to Banyan Books, Branches of Wisdom. Celebrating the joy of bright ideas and heartful lifelong learning. Branches of Wisdom is a series of intimate conversations with the world's most influential authors and visionaries. We explore spirituality and the human mind, ecology and culture. Most episodes are recorded with a live audience. You can join our live events and submit questions to your favorite guests. Check out our upcoming schedule at Banyan.com. Since 1970, Banyan Books has been a rich oasis at the crossroads of wisdom and philosophy, offering resources for humanity's evolving paths. We're a locally owned, independent bookstore in the heart of Vancouver's Kitsilano neighborhood. Visit us in person or shop online at Banyan.com. Please subscribe, follow, like, and leave your reviews for the podcast. And now, enjoy. Hello and welcome. My name is Jacob Steele, the events manager for Banyan Books and Sound. Today, we're delighted to be hosting Deborah McNamara in conversation with Maria LaRose on Dr. McNamara's new book, Nourished, Connection, Food, and Caring for Our Kids and Everyone Else We Love. I'd like to begin by acknowledging that although we have participants joining us from around the world for these online events, the physical location of Banyan Books is on the unceded territory of the Coast Salish peoples, including the territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh nations. Donations to Banyan Books help support these programs to be free for all. Just click on the PayPal link in the YouTube show notes below to donate. For those in our live audience, Deborah McNamara welcomes your questions. Please type questions into the chat box at any point during the event. And now for introductions. Deborah McNamara, PhD, is a clinical counselor and educator with more than 25 years experience. She's on faculty at the Newfeld Institute, operates a counseling practice, and speaks regularly about child and adolescent development to parents, childcare providers, educators, and mental health professionals. She's the author of the best-selling book, Rest, Play, Grow, the children's picture book, The Sorry Plane, and her new book, Nourished. Maria LaRose is an award-winning television producer and interviewer and an adjunct professor in the Faculty of Medicine at UBC. She received her Master's of Education from UBC in the Department of Education and Counseling Psychology with an emphasis on social and emotional development. Before embarking on a career in journalism, she coordinated the first child abuse prevention program in BC. She's a longtime advisor to the Dalai Lama Center and moderator of the DLC's HeartMind Conferences. Today, our guests will be in conversation about Dr. McNamara's new book, Nourished, Connection, Food, and Caring for Our Kids and Everyone Else We Love. Um, uh, Dr. Uh, Gabor Maté has said of the book, Dr. McNamara brings home the message that our responsibility as parents is not simply to feed our kids, but to nourish them, a task that depends on our nature-given capacity for relationality for holding our kids emotionally long after we no longer need to hold them on our laps. In a society that alienates us from our innate caregiving instincts, 
its lessons could not be more urgent. And I agree with that. Uh, the book is available from uh, Banyan. Uh, you can get it at banyan.com. And you can learn more about Deborah's work at mcnamara.ca and about Maria's work at marialarose.com. It's a great honor to have both of them with us today. Please welcome Deborah McNamara and Maria LaRose. Thanks so much, Jacob. You're going to be able to sit back and enjoy. Thank you. And we'll see you back here in just a little bit. Hi, Deborah. Hi, Maria. Lovely to see you. You too. Before we start, I want to say, of course, hello to all of you who are here with us for this next hour. Um, I, I'm just thinking that you're here because you've taken a look at this, even just a glimpse at it. And I know for me, just even reading the back, what does it mean to be nourished? Nothing could be more basic than food. However, food is only part of nourishment. I just read that part and wanted to read more, and I'm sure that you feel the same way. So Deborah's here, excited to tell you about her journey in creating the book, about uh, stuff that's in the book, how she feels about it, and wants to know how you feel about it too. So at any point as you're listening to this conversation that you have an aha moment or a comment uh, for Deborah, or, uh, or a question even for Deborah about your own experience, please do just uh, go to the comment section, write it in. We'll be watching that and definitely we'll come back for the last 15 minutes and answer questions. Perhaps we'll jump to it sooner, but please feel like you're part of this conversation. We invite you to join us. Um, so Deborah, uh, this is big. This is the launch of, uh, of one of your babies. Yes, it is. It has felt very big after a long time of doing research and writing. Yeah. It's nice and to be. It, it's been 10 years, right? Yes, it has been. It's been a it's been a slow process um, and taking my time with it because the kind of questions that I was asking or trying to overturn just seemed to uh, is, is like kind of trying to bust some myths and just trying to get underneath it, turn it around 180 degrees to say it's not about the table and why are it's all why are we asking about picky eating so much and something's really come undone so yeah it's taken some time or maybe I'm really slow but uh, <laughs> it's taken no. <laughs> I think it's because you're asking questions um, and exploring intersections that that mm -hmm. haven't really been um, mm -hmm. discussed before that's what I felt when I was I was reading it and and I wonder um, why this book and why now Mm -hmm. Well, you know, a lot of people say things find them, projects find them, and this found me. And it came out of a lack as, as a parent, having two young kids and having one that was a very good eater, if you want to put it that way, good, and one who was more picky. And going to Gordon Newfeld, who was my postdoc supervisor, if you can imagine, that was my go-to person was Gordon Newfeld. And I'm attachment-based, you know, theorist, I'm attachment-based in my practice. And here I was trying to feed my daughter and having problems and creating a relationship problem. Mm -hmm. So I went with my tail between my legs and with some shame and said to Gordon, I'm struggling with my picky eater. Do you have any insight? And he basically wouldn't answer my question, which was a brilliant move on his part. I won't reveal what he said, uh, but he turned me around. And, and what he was essentially saying to me is it's not about food. And it sent me on a quest and as I start to, I started to look for answers, I realized that something had come undone. Here I was studying with someone who's one of the world's leading attachment theorists, developmentalists. Uh, and here I was uh, doing this in my practice, helping family with relationship problems. And yet 
when it came to temper tantrums, putting them to bed. Yeah, I was doing this in the context of relationship, but in my feeding of my kid, it was coming undone. So it made me realize that something was broken and I felt this urge and I felt this alarm that I had to figure that out. Just describe that a little bit because I, I think people who are with us tonight identify with that. I came undone when it was about eating. So maybe starting with yourself, can you remember what that felt like? Mm -hmm. Maybe describe a scene. Yeah. So, you know, I would try to disguise food, you know, she wouldn't eat meat. So I was describe, you know, putting it and burying it in the rice, which I knew she liked. And then I would, you know, give it to her. And then I remember her wincing and then looking at me like, what are you doing? What are you feeding me? And, and it wasn't about the food anymore. It was about trust. I was being sneaky. I was trying to ram things, you know, into her to get her to try things. And, and, and it was like, she would look at me like, what are you doing? Uh, and spit out food. She was only three, you know, two and a half to three. Uh, but there was a sense of something's not right between us. And I grew alarmed and she grew more resistant. And then I panicked because she wasn't, my tricks weren't working anymore. Uh, and that's when then I, I went to Gordon. And I guess there are all kinds of reasons we become alarmed. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking when that ever happened to me, part of me was worried that they'd never eat again. Where did that come from? And, and mm -hmm. part of me was worried that I had lost control somehow. I mean, it's complicated, isn't it, Deborah? That that feeling that we get when what we're offering, and by the way, food for our, to our children isn't being taken in. Yeah, exactly. There's nothing more close to our provider instincts. We know attachment's important, important, but what comes right with that, right on top of it, is we got to keep them alive, and food and safety is so close to it. Now, attachment comes first, but it's so intertwined that when we fail to provide this way, all of the innate instincts start going, the alarm, the frustration, the pursuit, because it is so close to survival. We can't get this wrong. So of course we get stirred up. So whether we get it right or get it wrong, we're actually not impacting as much what they're eating as we are impacting their relationship with us. Yes, and with food, but yeah, with us, that comes first. And so because we have to show up so often to feed, <laughs> their tummies run out, they get hungry. And so we are doing this two to three times a day, how we're showing up around feeding. It's not about food, actually. It's about this dance of relationship and what gets enacted around food, the most primal thing we could take care of. It sets us in place. It sets us on a dance and a trajectory. But we don't talk about that. We talk about the food. We talk about nutrition. We talk about what's in the food. We talk about lots of stuff. And so it's like this divorce has happened where we just, we don't understand feeding is ultimately a caretaking dance and relationship. Are you saying that that's changed over time? That something in our culture has changed? Yeah, we've lost our way with our food. Our culture used to preserve our food ways. It used to ingrain in it relationality and how we had to gather, prepare. We had to rely on each other this way. We had the industrialization of food. We've had, um, you know, behavioral approaches to, you know, how much do you eat? Measure it. We've had this expansive knowledge about food itself and nutritionism. Nutrition is important. But everybody who says, you know, who works in the food area says any problems with food actually aren't about food. The solutions don't lie in the food. They actually lie in the relationship uh, that we have to the people who feed us and who take care of us. So, no, something has become terribly undone here when feeding is no longer an act of caretaking. 
so interesting because when you started on this journey of um, writing this book and thinking more about this topic, um, I don't know that you realized how urgent it was. It sounds to me like as you moved through the process, you were like, this is got to be told this. We need to talk about this. Yeah, absolutely. I I began thinking it was about the food. That was my question to Gordon. How do I get the food into her? And this book and this research transformed me. Listening to stories, listening to what parents were talking about, it absolutely changed me from the inside out. But without an understanding of human emotion, understanding of the significance of play, understanding the science of attachment, how we're meant to develop, I don't think without Gordon Neufeld's work, I could not have put these pieces together. It was only because I was embedded this in this that I could find my way back to what I think is broken. Um, in this. So most of us don't have any knowledge about all those things you listed. So we're relying on you as our guide. And so I wonder when you when you put this book down now, when you look at it, what are you hoping? What is your hope for us who are reading it? Yeah, my hope is, and, and the reason why I tell stories, instead of just drilling in the research and the science, and the way that I thought was important uh, to tell the story instead of telling what to do, is because these instincts to take care of our loved ones are in us. No one has to give these to us. It's It's like sort of pointing our way home. And that's what this book felt very much like for me. I, it's about how I found my way home, how I found my way back to the provider instincts that needed to guide everything I do, not just feeding. And I hoped as I was writing that in the stories that I tell of parents and have how food and relations come relationship comes together or has come apart, that we could each find our own story in that and find our own way uh, back to this place uh, where where things came together and weren't so separate. So that was my learning. Yeah, I think you've, just for myself, I think you've succeeded in, in um, doing that and in, in helping me understand more about what's really happening. And I think people who are with us uh, tonight okay. must have felt that way too, otherwise they wouldn't be joining us tonight. So I think you've accomplished that. And just now to get more concrete about that, because what you're talking about is, is um, unless, unless we give some real examples and talk about some specifics, it feels like, ah, it could leave you feeling kind of guilty and worried, right? I mean, this is something that you don't want people to feel. Yeah, with my daughter. Um, yeah, you know, it's, it's interesting because I think what happens is that it's really easy to go down the path of nutrition and, you know, good eating habits. But, you know, as I think about one of my daughters away at university right now, you know, calling me at 1030 at night and saying, Mom, I'm hungry. Uh, and why is she hungry? Because she's stressed out. She's got exams. She didn't eat her dinner because her stomach was upset. But 1030 at night, she's calling for food, much like the child, you know, when you put them to bed way back in the day, I'm hungry, I need a glass of water. And you're like, what? Uh, and it's not really about that. It's about seeking contact and closeness with food as an instrument of that connection. Mm -hmm. So I went and I picked her up and I got her. I said, well, it's just going to be whatever food's available and picked her up and, you know, uh, touch base with her, fed her um, and drove her back. But it wasn't about the food necessary. It was about that bridge that food provides between us so that we can find a return home. We can anchor in, we can find a place of rest, a sense of connection, a sense of belonging. And so 
Yeah. You know, are they really asking for food? Are they really asking for water? What are they really asking for here? That's the tricky part. Who knows? And who knows what to do? And especially, you know, you mentioned picky eaters and um, I Googled picky eaters and there was 11,900,000 hits. And I didn't look at 11,000. I didn't look at 12 million hits, but I did just do, you know, looked at kind of checked and almost all of those hits were um, tips on how to help your picky eater eat food. And, um, you know, you just mentioned the trick that you used. I always ground vegetables up into everything that they had, right? So it was that same anxiety and um, alarm about feeding them. But uh, let's let's stay with picky eaters for a minute because that's one that people really can relate to. Many people can relate to. You said mm -hmm. it's not really about the food. So walk me through that. Here you have a child who uh, the food is in front of them. Doesn't matter what age they are, I don't think. But let's say they're young. Mm -hmm. The food is in front of them, and they won't eat it. Yeah. So help me and help all of us who are here with you reframe mm -hmm. that scene. Yeah. So the instinct inside of us, because we're alarmed, is to just try one piece, just have it. You'll like it. You get the coercion. You get the pushing. Now, when we're pushing, what does that create inside of a child? You know, fear, alarm, discomfort. Uh, there's disconnection between us. But that's our alarm. Is start is does the pushing. But if we understood that that child actually has a bias to eat, wants to try actually new things, what makes them receptive to that? Well, an environment that is not full of coercion, an environment where they see, ah, oh, Nona's eating blueberries. What is that? Oh, but Nona likes it. Uh, you know, they don't I'm know. I'm Nona, by the way. <laughs> you know, I have to tell people. Yeah, if uh, Nona likes it, it's a, it's a strange looking blue mm -hmm. thing. But if Nona likes it and I like Nona and I love Nona, I trust Nona, then I'll want to eat like Nona. Um they do have shyness instincts that appear very strongly. Uh, and so, you know, they're trying to get to know about the world of food. What we know is food, they don't know yet. And so they have to have some autonomy around it. They have to do that in the context of play where there isn't pushing so they can come into being an eater and not simply being fed. Um, they have innate sensitivities in a chemical sensing system, taste, touch, smell. We don't know what that's like. The table is a very provocative place. There's lots going on at a table. We need to slow down and let them enter into it and if you know any two or three-year-old they're full of I do it myself and me do and you know as soon as it's your idea then uh you know it's like oh my goodness they back up you know the one interesting study that I found and it was just so beautiful was by a researcher by the name of Paul Rosen and he said there's something that happens magically between the ages of two and five in Mexico where the uh children at two do not eat the hot spices and chili peppers they're just like oh it's awful but by five something magical is happening where they're eating the same as their family members we don't know how that happens but we know it it's around the table where they see people enjoying the hot chili peppers. You don't need to teach this. You need to be embedded in context that's safe, caring. You're attached to your caretakers. If they're enjoying their food, you will warm up to these things. You will want to be like them. So when we get into battles around food, we dig in separation. We dig in detachment and we cannot lead them. Uh, they're not receptive uh, at that yes. point. So interesting because another thing that might go through our head is we can't let them get their way. 
Yeah. They can't be in control here. So there's this thing about control, um, dependence versus independence, control versus, can you speak to those of us who have that instinct? Yeah. Well, we should want to be in the lead. I mean, there's that, those are instincts to provide, but what we can never forget is that relationship is a two way street. You can't just lead, you can try to lead someone through coercion, but that won't get you very far. You just need a bigger stick, need something bigger to hold over somebody's heads. And that's not trust. That's Mm -hmm. fear. So what do we have to our avail? We have human connection where that child wants to be like us, is influenced by us. But what does that require? It requires an invitation from us. It requires a warm invitation, that desire and that yearning uh, to take care of them. But they must also trust us and take us up on our offer. So it's like a dance. You can't dance by yourself. You need to have a trusting, caring relationship where that child wants to follow you. Why do they want to follow you? Because you're safe, kind, caring, attached, you know, and and attachment is that glue that makes them want to come uh, to our side, be like us, want to be significant to us. So we've got to push into those instincts, rather than push them away from us and try to control lead. Yes, control. No, that doesn't work. So just to be clear about this, because I don't think what you're saying is that a, a child who is picky eater isn't well attached. No, no. I think, okay. So we need to yeah. so talk about that, that yeah. about it, this, it, it, because they are picky doesn't mean that you're, that you're doing it all wrong. So this is the, in oh. you, this is a nuance. It's really important for us. To yeah, understand. No, it, it is important to tease that apart. My daughter was picky because her chemical sensing system was through the roof. Then I created a relational problem and a context problem on top of that because I didn't understand her. So then I started pushing food. When I stepped back and stepped into relationship and the environment became more palatable for her. It wasn't fraught with arguments. She could eat what she wanted. She ate chicken nuggets for a while, I have to be honest. But then she saw us all enjoying butter chicken and she smelled butter chicken. How many times did she smell butter chicken? And it was associated with comfort. Then she came to know it. One of the interesting pieces of research I found is that kids with the strongest shyness instincts also have the most uh, challenges in terms of what we would call pickiness and reticence because shyness is, is, is part of the attachment repertoire. We only feel safe when we are connected and it's safe and, and caring in the environment. Then we feel safe to enter into it. Some of us have kids that are incredibly shy. We didn't create that. They, they come with that. So it means we have to go a little slower. We have to really make sure we're using connection, but they don't know about the world of food. They're coming to know it. So, mm-hmm. you know, if it was in culture, then we would just understand that they were just learning about it and that they would do this in the context of relationship. Mm-hmm. We would introduce them to their food as a gift. And we that one child to- is different from another. And they just exactly. are because of a whole bunch of things. And you as a parent, I think understanding what you're saying is so important because maybe when we're in that moment with our child or grandchild where they, they won't take what we're offering and whatever emotion that brings up in us that maybe uh, I know after reading your book it makes me just at least take a beat and not do what I'd ordinarily do and I don't know what to do actually exactly but I would take a beat now and say this isn't about this so it takes Mm -hmm. time right Deborah it's not like somebody's going to tomorrow after hearing you talk uh, do it right and differently it takes time yeah and I think it's it's exactly that it's about finding our way back to make food associated with positive emotions again 
It's about finding our way back to make it about an invitation to make seeing food as a gift and enjoy your food and eat the same food. And, you know, if they won't eat it, you know, share your delight of it, not in a coercive way, but just enjoy food as a gift that it is. But if we're worried about what's in the food, if it's clean or bad or good, then my goodness, there's so much alarm. Food isn't a gift when we are so full of those emotions. So enjoy it make it as positive as you can get away from the table if the table is a place of conflict you don't have to eat at a table there's no magic in the table the magic has always been you so you know just find another place to do that um i know that you did a lot of interviews as part of the beauty of this book is you 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 certainly looked at what the experts had to say and what the research you, you've referred to some of the research really fascinating research by the way that you found um, but you also talked to a lot of people about their own experiences. And I think yeah. it's worth sharing, uh, you know, a story maybe where there was one story in particular where a mother, with, just to, to tell us that there is room for repair, that there is a way to turn it around. And there was the one mother in particular, I think, who might have been one of um, your 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 clients or your patients. And you, she, she made a real change in her relationship her son's relationship with food and her relationship with her son. Do you remember that story? Yeah. Is it the one with the uh, quesadilla? Yeah. So this was so interesting. It was when I was first just trying to understand this relationship between food and relationship and how it came together. And I asked them, they were, there was some separation and some challenges in the relationship. And I said, do you feed your son? And no, we don't. And I said, well, would you try to prepare something for him? Let's see if he's willing to take it and what the uptake is. And she didn't know how to cook, uh, really. And so they had a food service. And so she brought in, um, she made a quesadilla. And she said it was incredible because he just ate it like he'd been starving, uh, starving. And he wanted another one. And she said it was burnt. It wasn't well done. And and he was starving for it. Uh, it conversely, her husband made him a favorite soup that was passed on from grandparents. And he wouldn't have anything to do with the soup. He didn't want to have anything with making it and I could see that in this dance of relationship he was receptive to mom's invitation for care and he wasn't with dad the wounding was so great with that and it was orchestrated through food and so within two sessions we already had a roadmap for how we needed to do repair how we needed to move in what was not coming how mom could play the uh, matchmaker to dad how dad had you know could take the lead and it was all through this orchestration of feeding where there was no words exchanged. It was just the uptake. Who was he receptive to and who was he not? It was incredible, incredible. And I, I think that um, what you just talked about was somebody who had your guidance, you were holding their hands through it and they were very fortunate. But my thinking after I read your book was that it's more about an, an aha, you know, an, um, an insight about food and relationship. That's the important thing here, that the strategies, there are actually a lot of stories of people with all kinds of examples of this with their families that people can find as, as a guide. But most important is probably just that insight, do you think? Yeah, yeah, I do. I think it, it um, you know, one of the things about the food area is that you get really happy people and chefs and family meals and everything's great and Instagram feeds and it's all like this happy, yeah. happy, happy. And then the reality is, is when you talk to parents and you talk and you, the reality of feeding kids and busy parents, there's a lot of 
challenges and it's heartbreaking uh really allergies to just battles around the table you're trying to put on a family meal you're busy it, it's stressful and so but nothing really pulls it together and so i think what i hope is that people will find themselves in this story for good bad and ugly and that there's hope uh for all of us in this that it's not about having to have home-cooked meals all the time or being the greatest chef. You don't even have to love cooking. You could buy the rotisserie chicken and, and feed your family. What comes first is, is attachment. It's relationship. You know, when it comes down to, to it at the end of the day, you don't have to love any of those things. You just have to love the people that you're taking care of. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, Gordon Neufeld, you know, he said there's, he called it, he said there's redemption here, which I thought was a very powerful word. But finding our way back home without the heavy weight of a prescription of it has to look like leave it to beaver or whatever back in the day, right? No, there we can invite our children to be dependent on us when it comes to feeding. And it can look like as simple as having a cup of coffee with them as they're eating their cereal. It's about remembering that food is secondary to connection and to put that connection first. Mm -hmm. So I think it's it's doable. It's I think it's refreshing. I think it frees us up from so much of the angst around food by realizing we can do connection. Mm -hmm. We're wired for this. We can mm -hmm. do connection. I'm not sure I'm wired for cooking, but I know I can do connection, right? Yeah, I had a moment this afternoon with my two-year-old uh, granddaughter. She was on, we were on FaceTime together. And she had just come home, and so she was having a snack. She was having, um, you know, Cheerios and milk, which is her latest favorite thing. And I kept thinking about what I was reading in in your book um, about the opportunity there that the the Cheerio and milk was actually the vehicle um, for connection. And in some ways, it enhanced the connection because she didn't have to just look into a screen and look at Nona and listen to Nona talking. You know, we interacted around the cereal. And so there's something about that too. And in your book, you talk about that as food is a, I don't know, you use the word vehicle. It's a, it's a good word. For it. A medium, a vehicle. Right a medium. Yeah. 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 That's, that was a, so that idea about, um, we don't automatically figure out how to handle the picky eater. But if in every scenario we're in where we pay attention to what you've said in the book about the opportunity that food, presents to us because what you said earlier too about Instagram I think that puts a lot of fear in our hearts because we aren't we don't make the food like that we don't know for a two-year-old the exact thing that we should be putting together for a two-year-old that's probably part of the problem eh things like that Oh, yeah, so much pressure, so much shaming, so much judgment. And, you know, I just was always an envy of those, you know, beautiful lunch bento boxes and things like this. And I'm just like, oh, my gosh, oh, <laughs> this is this is not me. One of the most beautiful pieces of research or hopeful pieces of research I found was uh, by Peter, uh, by uh, Gray. I His last name is Gray. Um, is that if you are attached to the person who feeds you, and you believe it comes with caring intentions, that it can change the taste, the subjective taste of the food. And people said this to me over and over again. My grandma wasn't a great cook, and she sometimes left out ingredients. Or my mother burned a lot of stuff, and she was not the best cook. But I always felt taken care of, and the food tasted good. Mm. It's like 
our, our perception of being cared for makes food taste better. It's it's you, wow. when you see the wiring, you're like nature intended this to be an act of care. It's profound. Yeah, I can just really hear you're trying to um, remove some of that high anxiety about oh. all of that that we're from the competition or the comparisons that we see about food, and just really think about what is this about. Yeah. And, and um, you know, sometimes they feed us, you know, little children want to cook something and make it for you and, and make believe, right? You know, and pretend when you're playing, there's probably something in there as well around them nourishing. Yeah. It's, it's one of the places where you see those first caretaking instincts come to light is that little child that starts to feed others. And we think that they're imitating us and just copying us, but actually it's much more profound. It's because they've been cared for, they now are moved, those attachment instincts are moved to take care of somebody else. And the first place that it appears is to feed. It's just comes mm -hmm. to feed. It's the most natural thing in the world is this invitation to care for through food. Yeah. Um, and it's just this beautiful expression of what nature hardwired us to do, which is to take care of each other and to glue us together with these beautiful uh, attachment instincts so we can survive. Uh, that's that's what it's all about. When you were talking about that story of the um, the grandparents' food, the grandmas or grandfathers' food not being not being great, but it was so delicious it, to them, it made me think about um, each adult that comes to this equation. So if the equation that we've been talking about so far is the, ch the parent and the child, the grandparent, the adult and the, and the child. Each adult comes with their own story about food as well. Yeah. So maybe talk a little bit about that and how do we factor that in to, um, to the repair around all of this? Yeah. Well, every expert that I talked to that works in the eating area said in North America, we all have some sort of eating issue, whether it's because of diet culture, being alarmed about our food or, you know, obsessed about it or whatever it might be, health conditions around it, that we each come to it now because of our broken food culture. We each now come with our own stuff. It's emotionally provocative for all of us now. So when I talked to parents, yeah, when I talked to parents, they said, uh, this is my food history. I don't want it to be my kids. I've had an eating disorder or I've struggled with food. I don't want my kids to have body image. I want them to be healthy and I want to provide for them. And it was so interesting to see how they, uh, their provider instincts wrestled with those emotions to deliver something so different for their children because there was such an understanding where there were food issues um, that I don't want my kids to have to do this. And so you know, it was phenomenal having children, just that um, transformation and that struggle and that adaptation, a parent with kid, with a child with food allergies and anaphylaxis, like really hard issues for parents. But my goodness, do you ever see the resiliency, the adaptation and how love and care for your child pushes you right up against the wall? So you have to figure it out. And I can tell you the stories of parents that they shared with me, um, if you've if you've never had those kind of food challenges for yourself, you understand what love does to you in terms of turning you into the caretaker your children needs. It's an act of courage, a bravery. Uh, it's a, it's an act of uh, a great um, uh, of great love. Yeah, I for for me for sure. I was in our trailer last week and reading your book, and I continually turned to my husband and kept engaging him in conversation about um, himself to reflect on, it, it, they raised questions for me that I was interested in about him 
really interested in about myself, my own yeah. thinking, you know, for the first time about certain aspects of eating and relationship. And so again, you you mentioned people who, who are at a, at, at a place where they're in therapy, but this book also, for anybody, I think, um, would allow, would open up those conversations with with someone who they who they love and someone who they feel safe with and those conversations are probably useful yeah i th i think so i mean i've heard from people that read it just like you said is it it feels provocative but in a good way it feels challenging yeah. but in a good way that we have to put some language well, well what has been lost here what what does feel broken what was my own relationship? And as I wrote the book, I was reflecting on my relationship with food, my relationship with my daughter, what brought me comfort as a child with food. And, you know, why did I start making pies when my daughter was about to be born and I'm making meat pies? And my husband's like, why are you making meat pies? We don't even eat meat pies. And I'm like, well, we need it for when the baby. We will born. now. <laughs> and I'm just like, exactly. And he's like, I don't like meat pies. And the baby doesn't have any teeth. So what are you doing? Stop, mad woman. You're like making pies for the freezer. But pies were my comfort food. Meat pies were the, I remember so, them so fondly being connected to my mother with the, these pies that she made. So why in a time when I was becoming a mother and nesting as it was, mm. that I turned to create the very comfort food that brought me comfort as a child. It, it wasn't conscious. It was very unconscious. And so you see how all of these emotions get tied up with food. And and I think it, it brings the richness of that, the things that are invisible that we don't see, but we just enact. And it mm -hmm. kind of just calls our attention to it and says, hey, we're playing at relationship and emotions here through our feeding and eating practices. What is this about? Why will you have a drink with some people and a dinner with another and only a coffee with another person over mm -hmm. here? What is that about? What is it about? It's about vulnerability. It's about how close, you know, um, eating. Uh, there's a quote I say in the book is, you know, eating, uh, having a drink is for strangers. Uh, you know, when you get closer, it's a meal and family. It's this beautiful uh, invitation for relationship of bringing someone closer when you share the vulnerability uh, of, of a meal because um, you're sharing an experience and the food is symbolic of that togetherness if it's a vulnerable uh, situation for you. You have just brought a whole new meaning to comfort food. Exactly. Very interesting. Yeah. I was always thought about comfort food as, you know, macaroni and cheese, which would be one of mine. That's just a personal, just me, right? But I think I heard you say that when you, when you, when somebody else's comfort food, when you offer them their comfort food, I've just had this aha about that, that, that that's more than just giving them something they like. It's relational. Yeah, comfort food was strongly connected to the emotions that you felt about a particular relationship. Mm. You know, I tell a story in there that a psychologist had given me about a client who had just found out she had a cancer and um, was facing a horrible diagnosis. And her client found herself uh, going to the store and eating uh, a particular candy that was associated with her mother giving it to her as a child. And she just ate it and ate it and didn't understand what this urge was to find comfort. But she was searching for that, that hand, you know, that fed her mm -hmm. uh, in a time when she needed to be taken care of most of all, but she found it through food. Um, so yes, it's so intertwined together. And so can discomfort. Mm -hmm. Some food Maybe comforting for one and completely full of discomfort for another because the conditions in which it was served or delivered were anything but relationally friendly and provocative emotionally. 
And I think what, you know, I began by asking you about the adult's own experience with food. And I think you've had many experiences with people and heard stories about people who were able to um, make 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 clear to themselves, understand more what their relationships, how their relationship with food was related to the relationship with people. And they were able to be different with their children. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think it's because you have children that the growth is possible. Because mm -hmm. I don't think you can do this in isolation with yourself. Like this whole idea of, you know, self-care. Yes, I, I get that. I don't totally disagree with it. But I think there's something profound and something that is unlocked in these provider instincts, in this caretaking, these attachments, this yearning uh, to take care of somebody that is yeah. so fulfilling when you can land it, that it draws something different out of you um, and a different relationship with food and being the provider. Yeah, I, I think about friends of mine too, who are it, who are that way with me. They they want to make sure because I don't always eat. I forget to eat. I you know that's a whole other thing. You could do some therapy with me on that, but <laughs> we won't do that right now. I just forget to eat. Yeah. And there are some friends who have that nurturing yes. um, thing that you're talking about, and, and it's not towards a child. It's towards me, and I feel it, and I appreciate it. You know, yeah. so in your cover of your book, you, you say, and everybody else we love, you know, connection, food and caring for our kids. And I just want to say that I don't think this is exclusive of the parent, child, grandparent, child relationship. There are a lot of relationships where food is central to that love and that that that, that attempt to connect. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I, my husband works in the uh, hospitality and um a restaurant business. And so his reflection after reading the book was, I got to get the chef out of the kitchen. I got to get him out there with people so they can see who's caring for them behind the scenes. Because it's that care that makes that food taste better and they can actually attach it. It's not a depersonalized or detached uh, situation. There's Then there's a whole host of people behind the scenes who care deeply about their customers. And yet the chef is lost on the food, he said. That's a really interesting idea. Let us know how that goes. Yeah, I, I'm not sure he's convinced <laughs> everyone of that yet, but it's, it's a that's because they haven't read your book. Yet. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but think about the restaurants that get the yeah. top reviews. Think about the ones. It's not necessarily the fancy stuff. It's like the mom and pop shops who are, you know, feeding, and there's this sense of relationality and of feeling taken care of. And why are those restaurants the ones that are doing so well? Someone sent me a note and said. Oh, after reading your book, I understand now why the restaurant called the Angry Chef went out of business. Mm, oh, that's interesting. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I, I think I get that too. <laughs> totally. That was a very sub, subliminal kind of message to the yes. eaters there. Exactly. Um, yeah, and, and so and so you're talking about restaurants, but um, also there are lots of places in our society where we're feeding food to people who sometimes are, are you know, for example, in schools or in assisted living situations, um, yeah. food banks. And there are a lot of situations where food is being provided. Um, are there implications for those kinds of um, programs too? Oh, I think so. Because I think the focus has always been on the food in these situations, right? And the programs that have food attached to them, they're always the most, uh, like the most popular uh, programs. And yet when there's budget cuts, we say cut the food. And mm -hmm. yet it feels like something has gone, something meaningful is missing from this gathering. Uh, it's like um, it, it, it's like this 
a stamp on the relationship. It's a stamp on the gathering that says we are coming together around the food. But how do we feed our kids in school? It's not just about the food to have energy to study. It's about the context in which they eat. It's about who are they eating with? Uh, is there emotional safety there? Yes, you're in a care home, but do you feel cared for? Is caring a service that you deliver as, uh, you know, sort of an, a role or is it actually an emotion? Like in a care home, just because you call it a care home doesn't mean someone feels taken care of. People always complain about institutional food. I would argue it's not just about the nature of the food. It's about the depersonalized, detached form in which the food is delivered. We don't know our caretakers. That's really interesting. Do you know the other thing that just came to me when I said food bank is um, I saw, I heard a statistic the other day that one in five families in our in our province yeah. um, are not able to find enough food for their for their own families and and so you know earlier you said it's not about the food and it's and it's not about the table and i think there's a message in that too for for all of all of those people who who find themselves in that situation yeah i think we have to bring dignity to that delivery of food especially for families there was one beautiful um uh, example up in Haida Gwaii when uh, COVID hit and uh, this one school has a greenhouse and they feed their community, they feed the kids from the greenhouse and the mm -hmm. grandparents come in and they feed, uh, they make the food and they feed it. But they had all this food and they didn't know what to do during COVID and they knew families needed it. And so they got together and they pulled all the food resources, everybody donated food and brought the food together. They sorted through it and they went and they gave the food to the caretakers in each home and said here. So the caretakers could then feed their family. Wow. So it preserved the nature of the relationship as the caretaker being the answer. Now the caretakers needed help, but we don't need to share that with the kids who are looking mm -hmm. to their parents to be the answer here. How do we do this? You know, in, in I think about, you know, one of my sisters works, um, in uh, with a food truck and serves food uh, for people and, and distributes it. And the dignity, the integrity, the relationship people show up for, they don't just show mm. up for food. They show up to be gathered. They showed up to feel they matter, to have a conversation, to get resources. Yeah, the food is important, it's necessary, but there's such an honoring of the relational piece that must also come with it. Because otherwise it doesn't, it just, it, it, food becomes fuel. We become machines. It becomes depersonalized. It's always meant to be given with relationship here. That, and that's what makes it feel much more humane, uh, quite frankly. And that's such a moving story about that uh, community, the Indigenous community, where, if I understand correctly, it also was young people who were doing the growing and the sharing. Yeah. So if you can just think of relationships all the way down that chain exactly. about, around food and also just that I, I got a sense for the person in the home where the food was being delivered. Wouldn't you feel like your community had your back? Exactly. Um, and, so, and because it's food, yeah, it's even, I don't know, it's, it seems even more uh, essential. Yeah, it is. And what that does in terms of human resilience and feeling connected to a community and, and buying and getting you through a hard time, it's I'm not alone. I mean, that's the essential question for all of us is, you know, am I cared for? Am I part of cascading care? Uh, is there uh, someone out there that I belong to? So, and being is that the term cascading care? What, is yeah, that cascading. what I? Yeah. 
yeah, it's that beautiful cascading care, you know, and uh, nature gives to us her plants. We, you know, do this. We also give back to nature. Uh, we take care of nature. She rewards us with these gifts uh, of food, but then we share it. We don't take more than we need. And we, and this beautiful reciprocal arrangement where we are in relationship with food as a gift to our ancestors, to our land, to our animals, to each other. Uh, and, and that is nature's plan for us, but we have come so far uh, from that, uh, those, those, um, her wishes uh, for us this way. You spoke with a lot of First Nations people or about uh, First Peoples' uh, way of seeing things, way, way of seeing food. It sounds like you learned a lot from, from um, those conversations. I was invited into uh, many communities and uh, asked permission to share other stories that they gave me. And, you know, one of them is when I did work uh, with our um, Squamish uh, peoples and uh, had a ceremony, right? Like I had done a presentation and then there was a, the rituals that I was invited to into um, for lunchtime and the blessings over the food and how I was an honored guest and the song they sang. And I just felt by the time the food came, I was, I honestly, I felt full already. And I felt full because there was such a beautiful invitation. There was ritual around food. There was a sense it was a gift and it was, mm -hmm. um, the cherry on the ice cream because the the richness was from the relationship but my goodness like we don't slow down to eat we're on the run there's no ritual there's no uh, gathering this way there's no reflection it's not a place of rest it's food is fuel throw it in so you can go get back to work we need to rest and food was meant to be part of that um, but we don't honor those rituals uh, that way we don't we don't have rituals that protect food this way we need to rest and I was thinking about that when I was eating my lunch while I was working at my laptop today. <laughs> thinking, note to self, I think this is what Deborah meant by rest. Yeah, <laughs> Don't do this. yeah. actually, you know, it's funny because I was I was uh, eating lunch today and my one of my sisters called me right as I was eating lunch. And she said, oh, because I was thinking, oh, God, I don't want to look at my phone. I'm eating lunch. I just I need to be in connection, but I'm all alone. And then one of my sisters called. And she said, oh, I'm sorry if you're eating lunch. I'm like, no, this is perfect. I needed to eat with someone. So I hope you don't mind. <laughs> oh, that's good. <laughs> you see, perfect. you have that new habit of mind now where you're going to turn it all around. So it is about relationship. <laughs> <laughs> you know, when you were saying, too, about the idea that I think in, in certainly in my in my family, the Italian side of my family, food was um, a big gift. It was an offering that was significant. Whatever it was, it was we knew that it, it meant more than just the food. And as a professional, when I would do television documentaries and go into people's homes, they often offer you, of uh, course, offer you food and some. And um, and I noticed that some people were able to say, "No, that's I'm all good." And I had this strong feeling of. I can't say no. This is an offering. It was so much more, it meant so much more to me when they were saying, Would you like a cup of coffee? Who knows what it meant to them? But to me, it was like, This is somebody offering their relationship, right? Exactly. Through coffee. So it, it, that's an example of an insight that we can have about what what our experience was. Yeah. Um, we have a question that just came in. And what I was just going to say, Deborah, is that interesting you have found with this book more than other, say, parenting books is that there, there aren't often a flood of questions. Um, it's different in that way, isn't it? Mm -hmm. It's very different. I think it, it turns us inward. 
It turns us inward to our stories, to our emotions, to our relationships, because it gets to something so primal. Relationship and food, there isn't anything that we need more for survival than the pairing of these. And so I and because we weren't ever meant to look at this, culture was meant to take care of it because it has come undone. It was meant to be invisible. And now we're shining a light on it. It's like, oh, now I have to look at this. And it's I think it's it stirs us up. It certainly stirred me up. And I had 10 years to sit with it. And you know, it, it I had time with it. So um it's okay. It's okay. I'd love that. to know from people who are there if if it is if it is you don't need to write anything, but I would be interested with a thumb up even. Is is some of this resonating with you, or is it making you think about your own experiences with food? And and you know, just give us a thumbs up if you feel like it. But I just want to say that a thank you to Jen Lee who just sent a message saying the old saying rest and digest. There are a lot of GI issues from hurrying and not being present with your vital force, the food. So that's Absolutely. such an awesome uh, thing to remind all of us of, but especially me, generally. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. No, it's very true. So that's, the, I mean, I know that you got very interested in that whole gut, the gut, the brain, emotion, and there's no way we have enough time here to do that. But what generally saying about GI issues isn't just about the food. No, and most gastro, they said in the literature, it says gastroenterology, uh, enterologists who work in the field now have said it's not about uh, the functioning of the body. We have to look at the emotional piece now that they know their field and what is coming forward is not simply about the food and the functioning of the body. It's about the emotional piece. It is the second uh, leading issue for visits to the hospital is gut issues in North America. It's fascinating. And if you think it's not all about food, it's not all about the functioning of the gut, uh, then you realize we can be, we're in distress emotionally, and yet the body doesn't work. And then of course, uh, it's all tied together. You can't separate body, heart, mind. It's all mm. meant to flow together. So. so interesting. Generally, thanks for that reminder. And thank you for letting us know that you're appreciating this conversation. Also, um, Mary Savon. Mary Savon. Um, uh, I, I, I was earlier, I mentioned that I had conversations in the trailer with my husband about this book, but you make that really easy for all of us because in the back of the book, I'm not sure why you did this, but I'm sure glad you did. You offered questions that we could ask ourselves or ask others book club questions. I guess mm -hmm. that's pretty common, but I loved your questions. Mm -hmm. And um, what were you thinking when you did that? What were you hoping? I was hoping that it would help highlight the message that I wanted delivered in each particular chapter and that it would help create reflection, dialogue, and invite people to find their own answers. Because I think in this area, there's far too many prescriptions for how it should look. And those prescriptions prevent us from getting where we need to go. We just, it's not even, can't do that. It's not possible. And there's too much guilt and shame around it. And I just wanted to come back and talk about food in a way that celebrates it. That's, it's a gift that doesn't ignore the problems that there, is there with it, but is an invitation to say, hey, we can figure this out. We can find our way back, but just let's be patient and sit with some of the questions we need to. We'll find our way. Um, so that was the hope anyway. Yeah, it works. And I also think that it's probably a book where I might read a chapter at a time and then, pardon the pun, but digest it <laughs> and uh, and then come back to the book. Maybe look at those questions, come back to the book again. It sounds like hard work, but 
it, it's hard work either way. Either you do the work and you have a better relationship with food and relationships, or you don't do the work and you struggle with those things. So uh, mm -hmm. that's a that's a real gift that you've given all of us by coming up with those questions. Um, you know, we have about four minutes left, Deborah, and I, I'm just going to be quiet for a little bit and um, just let you have the, the final words here um, about what are the maybe the, the main takeaways for you from the research you did. Um, yeah. and, oh, there's here, there's a question, any advice for early childhood educators bringing these ideas into our work? Maybe you can fold that in. Thank you for the question. Um, into your into your final your final no. comments. I'll exactly. just step away now. <laughs> well, thank you. I've appreciated um, your reflection, your insights, and in bringing it to concrete places as well, because it has to it has to tie into that. If there's no utility in the home, in childcare settings, and in, in schools, then then it's it's uh, an intellectual exercise at best. Mm -hmm. So what are the messages for how we take this into our lives? If you're a childcare provider in the home, you know, Gordon Newfeld is always very good at distilling things into the essence. And so what is the essence here? And there were three things that I, I sort of landed on. Number one is that an understanding from all levels, from the gut to the heart, the brain, to mind, body connection, that uh, food serves us best when it serves togetherness, that its ultimate purpose is to be a, a medium a way of expression for a caretaking, that togetherness is enhanced because our stomachs run out of food and we need to gather. That, you know, we come to the table not just for food, but for connection. And we do need that connection. We have separation in our days, but we need to come back for connection. Separation and then connection. And because we are uh, a species this way that is so, that needs each other to emotionally survive, we're lucky that we have this food that can serve our togetherness. Isn't and just to say quickly, you said table, but it doesn't even have to be a table. It doesn't have to be a table. You could be picnic, could be the car, could be wherever you have togetherness. Togetherness, we have to unpack that construct and say this is about relationship and not a physical seating. Um, if we understand that, okay, so if say you're a daycare provider and you say, okay, food must serve togetherness, what do we do? Well, the old adage that we need to eat together, eat together, eat together, you see this everywhere, food and nutrition guides, we need to eat together. But that places food before togetherness. It's not eating together, it's gathering first and then eating gather is there relationship is there receptivity you may be in charge of feeding kids as a child care provider but that doesn't mean they're attached to you it doesn't mean they're receptive mm -hmm. to you their tummies don't work they'll get tummy aches they'll refuse your food do you have relationship what do you need to get relationship so you can get receptivity gather first then eat because that's the order that nature meant it to come and 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 finally is to understand that food can serve, can't serve two masters here at one time. It, this was actually quite remarkable when I saw it, that, that food can serve togetherness and can bring us, when served in the context of togetherness and food is delivered this way through relationship, it can enhance bonds, it can tie us together, it can be a sense of intimacy that develops. But if food is served in a way that does not serve togetherness, it automatically lends itself to serve emotional distress from overeating to not eating, whatever the, the situation might be. Our stomachs don't work. We can use food um, as, as an anesthetic with emotional eating. But as soon as you put this back into relationship, we have our answers. So it's always important that we think about 
context first. We think about relationship first before we go to take care of someone through food. Do we have their heart? Do we do they trust us? What do we need to do to to represent ourselves as a caretaker here to somebody? Don't assume because you get paid for it and that's your role and responsibility that you have that. You don't. We need to we need to build that relationship first. Wow. So the conversation's now really building. Elena said this conversation's making me reflect on the most recent meal that I had with my son for dinner, and it's making me look forward to the next meal. I think that probably really warms your heart, Jim. Let's invite Jacob back on now um, and yeah. as we say goodbye to everyone because I realize it's eight o'clock now. But um, Deborah, thank you so much for this book, for doing all of that work for us. Uh, and I hope you continue to hear from people um, about how it's changing their lives and raising questions for them. And Jacob, don't we love Banyan, Deborah? I mean, just all of us. Don't favorite we love Banyan? Favorite books. We sign, exactly. As we sign off, Jacob, thank you to you. Thank you so much. Yeah. Oh, we can't hear oh, you. Oh, no, your audio. You're, you have to unmute yourself, Jacob. There, you can hear me now. Sorry. Um, yeah, that was. Um, I just, if I can just say quickly that uh, that was really, really powerful just for me, just listening. And uh, as Deborah knows, I you know I have I have two children, and uh, it's so relevant. And um, I just wanted to say this thing, quick thing. Um, I was listening to this Leonard Cohen interview uh, recently. And he was talking about how um, he said at a certain point, all you want to hear is in a song is like how one person tries to love somebody else, something like that. And I, I was thinking that like every story, every movie you watch is really about that. It's just about how somebody tries to love somebody else and how they fail in that, how they succeed and uh, or how they overcome and their own obstacles. And uh, so you've really made the story you've shown that the story of food is that. And I've honestly never seen that before. So thank you so yeah. much. Yeah, thank you. Brilliant, Deborah. Thank you. And well, thank you on behalf of, of Banyan Books. And to let everyone know, you can get the book Nourished at Banyan, banyan.com. You can find out more about Deborah's work at mcnamara.ca. And you can find out about Maria's work at marialarose.com. Uh, so yeah. yeah. Or CA, both work. Thank both you, everyone. Time. Uh, go Thank forward you. and uh, gather and then meet. Bye-bye. <laughs> yeah. Bye-bye. Thanks for joining us for Branches of Wisdom, a podcast of Banyan Books and Sound, Canada's spiritual and healing resource since 1970. Our podcast producer is Jacob Steele. Watch all our conversations on YouTube by searching for Banyan Books or listen on your favorite podcast platform. Please subscribe, follow, like, and leave your reviews and comments. We love to hear from you. For all our live events, books, and more, visit us at banyan.com. <laughs>